This episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. New supporters can vote on what books and guests should be featured in upcoming episodes. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash cmtu history. Hello and welcome. I'm Kevin and this is another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. We're talking military history today and invoking the indispensable man, His Excellency George Washington. My guest today is Bob Drury. Bob is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist-turned-author who has written or co-written over a dozen books. He joins us on the podcast to talk about his most recent book, Valley Forge, that he co-wrote with Tom Clavin. In our discussion, Bob and I separate the myths associated with Valley Forge from its reality, how George Washington became the one man the American Revolution could not do without, and how the hellish six months in Valley Forge tempered the Continental Army from a ragtag militia into a professional fighting force capable of ousting the largest empire in the world. This one is a lot of fun, but with this being a military topic, you will hear some mild language in this episode, so if you like to listen with the kids in the car, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Now let's get to it. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Alright, Bob Drury, welcome to the show Kevin, thank you for having me on. How are you today? I'm delightful. Better for your asking. Good. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself. It looks like Valley Forge is the last in a long line of books by you. That's correct. Let's hope it keeps going. As long as I remain vertical. I told my wife I'm going to die at the, uh, at the I almost said typewriter, at the computer keys. Uh, I've been a lifelong journalist. I was a newspaper man for quite some time, covering everything from sports to the mob to the crack wars in the 80s in New York City. That was, well, I shouldn't say it was a good time, but it was a good time to be a reporter. And then I went uh, overseas for nearly two decades, uh, working for various magazines as mostly a war correspondent. I was the unluck Kevin, I was the unluckiest war correspondent you've ever met. I mean, I took a bullet in my leg in Afghanistan. My right wrist has a shrapnel scar from Sarajevo. I was blown oh off a helicopter. Was blown off a helicopter in Iraq and had to have part of my spine taken out. But uh, but I'm still playing tennis twice a week and uh, all is well. So that's my background. I guess oh, sometime in the 80s and 90s, I was a, I was ghostwriting books for various mobsters. And then finally, when frankly, when I got too old to be running away from people trying to shoot at me in these hellholes around the world. <laughs> I just I decided to uh, to write military histories uh, full-time, and some on my own, some with my co-author and partner, Tom Clavin, and Knockwood. We've been pretty lucky so far. Most of our books at least have a cup of coffee on the New York Times list. One of them, uh, the longest run we had was The Heart of Everything That Is, our book about Kevin, the only Indian to win a war, not a battle, a war against the United States. It spent uh, 25 weeks on the Times list. And the only reason I'm telling you this story is because when it fell off, I turned to my wife the following week and I said, you know, one more week and I would have been able to brag I spent half a year on the New York Times bestseller list. 
And she looked at me. She said, 25 weeks, 26 weeks. Who's going to know? Just say you did it. And I said, I can't. I'm a journalist, don't you know? So, <laughs> so anyway, I'm still writing. And uh, in fact, you before you called, I was working on my next one. But I know you don't want to talk about my next one. You want to talk about Valley Forge. So what do you got? Well, what made you decide to settle on this topic of Valley Forge? What made you decide to write about this? Kevin, it's a very personal story. I have a, uh, a son who's half French, Liam Antoine. Liam Antoine Debeshire Drury. And his mother's French, of course, and he's been bilingual since toddlerhood. He speaks four languages now. He's, he's 21 now. He's in university. He's graduating from the University of East Anglia in a couple of months. Anyway, at some point, we were down at his stepmother, my, my wife's, uh, I think it was, Chris, it was Christmas. We're down in Philadelphia for a Christmas party. And this got to be six, seven years ago. I guess Liam Antoine was 14 or 15. And I heard a kerfluffle in the television room. And so I walked out of the kitchen and I saw my son come out. He was kind of red-faced. I could tell something was happening. I said, what's the matter? And he turns out my, uh, my, my wife's brother had made some crack about the United States bailing out the French in two world wars. And Liam Antoine shot right back to him, yeah, if it wasn't for the Marquis de Lafayette and the French army, you'd be Canada right now. And not only was I so proud of my son for standing up to this 40-something man, but it was like a cartoon light bulb went off over my head. I said, Valley Forge, Marquis de Lafayette. Wow, the Marquis de Lafayette during the, during the Revolutionary War would make a great book. Romantic, dashing, action, adventure. We were just finishing up The Heart of Everything That Is at the time, Tom Clavin and I, my co-author. And uh, we had already committed to our next project, our World War II book, Lucky 666. But I called Tom and I said, listen, this is in the queue right after Lucky 666. As it would turn out, while we were working on Lucky 666, the inimitable writer Sarah Vowell came out with basically our idea for a book, although it was her idea, of course, Lafayette in the somewhat United States. And it's a wonderful book, probably better than anything Tom or I could have written about Lafayette during the Revolutionary War. And so I kind of gave up the idea, but Tom, who had done a little more research on Valley Forge than I had, said, what do you know about Valley Forge? And basically, I said, you know, I guess what I learned in American history or eighth grade civics class, a bunch of starving, freezing, half-clothed Minutemen uh, sitting around in the snow dying. And let me see, what else do I know? I guess George Washington on a big white horse watching them starve and freeze to death. And Tom said to me, I think there's a lot more to this story than most Americans know than, and more than we know. So even at this time, we were finishing up the Lucky 666, our World War II book. But I took some time out. It was February four years ago. So that would be February 2015. And uh, with apologies to T.S. Eliot, I did know by then that February was the cruelest month at Valley Forge. So I made arrangements to meet the U.S. Park Service's chief Valley Forge historian. I drove down there and we spent the day together on a walking Jeep tour. And I got home that night and I called Clave and I said, we got a book. We got a book. There are so many things, so many myths to be dispelled, so many huh moments. And I said, even though it wasn't a battle, and it's funny, well, the, I've got to know during the research, the, the, the 
uh, Park Service Rangers down at Valley Forge, and they get the craziest questions. Like, who won the Battle of Valley Forge? Well, it wasn't a battle. But even crazier than that, it's, you know, many times people, when they're looking at or when they're shown George Washington's headquarters when he was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, they'll say to the ranger, oh, well, that was Washington's headquarters. Where was Lincoln's headquarters? <laughs> so, so anyway, that's how the book came about. We, Tom and I realized there's not been a lot written about Valley Forge. There's been, believe it or not, there's more children's books than there are popular histories. And we just thought we had a grand story. And uh, as it turns out, we still think we do. All right, Bob. Set the scene for us, if you will. It's the summer and fall of 1777. We're in the beginning of the American Revolution. Uh, what's the status of the war effort at this point? How are we doing? Oh, two military acronyms come to mind, Kevin. I'm not sure if I can use either one of them on your podcast. You'll have to edit me out when I say it was <laughs> TU or FUBAR. <laughs> we were not doing well. Uh, after the initial uh, headiness of driving the British from Boston, everything seemed to be going downhill. George Washington, who was, well, let me step back for a second just to explain. People don't know this. I mean, we look at George Washington as the guy on the dollar bill. And, you know, he came out of the womb wearing a blue and buff uniform, you know, maybe even riding that white horse, his poor mother. And, but he was a, he was a compromise candidate to become commander in chief of uh, the Continental Army. The New England firebrands, who had basically started the revolution, they realized that if they were going to take on the greatest empire in the world, the British Empire, they needed Virginia in the fight. Virginia was the most populous state, it was the largest state, it was the most wealthy state. So Washington had been a good infantry commander, a militia commander, fighting alongside the British during what we call the French and Indian War. So, okay, the New Englanders kind of bit their tongue and, okay, we'll go with Washington. John Adams in particular had no great love for George Washington. In fact, he once said Washington was a big man, and he once said the only reason he's commander-in-chief, the only reason we made him commander-in-chief is because he's always the tallest man in any room he walks into. So he's not the indispensable man yet. Yes, not yet. But, uh, and he was a, he was a, once again, he was not the guy on the dollar bill we see, the guy in the library painting. He was, he had foibles. He was, he, he, he was a, he never wanted to show his emotions. He only showed them to Martha and maybe some very, very tight, tight associates. And, but this was a man who was stung by the fact that when he was in the militia, for instance, he was a colonel in the militia fighting alongside the British, he could be ordered around by British lieutenants, regular army lieutenants and captains who were ranked below him, and it stung him. He was embarrassed by the fact that he did not have a college education, as so many others did, Alexander Hamilton and so on. And he never let these emotions show in public, but during that late summer and fall of 1777, Washington had the weight of the world on his shoulders, and his aides and associates, they knew it. I mean, let's face it, after the British marched on Philadelphia and took what was then our nation's capital, 
the Continental Congress scattered to the winds. Most of them went back to their home districts. A rump quorum convened in an inland Pennsylvania town called York. They took over the courthouse there. But for those six months between the time that the Continental Army marched into Valley Forge in, on December 19, 1777, till the time they marched out six months to the day on June 19, 1778, George Washington was the personification of the American Revolution. He had the weight of the world, meaning the weight of this revolution, on his shoulders. And if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for his stoicism, if it wasn't for his zeal, if it wasn't for his loyalty to his troops, <laughs> my son was probably right. We would be Canada right now. So to answer, that's a long way. That's a long-winded way of saying things were not going well in what they call the Pennsylvania Campaign of 1777. Washington was, he was flummoxed by uh, General Howe, who was the British commander in charge of all forces in North America. Every step Washington took, Howe seemed to beat him to it. We were defeated when he tried to stop Howe from taking Philadelphia. He was defeated at Brandywine Creek, the Battle of Brandywine Creek. And not only was defeated, if it wasn't for a flanking maneuver by some of his homegrown generals, uh, Anthony Wayne of Pennsylvania and Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island, the Continental Army probably would have been either annihilated or captured whole. Then that was followed by a massacre at a place outside of Valley Forge named Pioli, uh, where the British uh, midnight bayonet attack, and, and they just decimated General Wayne's regiments. And then his final, final shot. Back then, as you well know, there were fighting seasons, and you didn't fight in the wintertime. So Washington thought he had one more shot at taking the British by surprise. And he organized this complicated battle scheme to attack the British, who at the time were already in Philadelphia, but the bulk of the army was camped in Germantown, which then was a farming community outside Philadelphia. It's now part of Philadelphia proper. This scheme to attack the troops at Germantown at dawn. And Kevin, it came this close to working. The, the British, the Hessians, they were on the run. The the U.S. the Continental uh, soldiers, they they had they came. Right now, I'm holding my forefinger and my thumb this far apart. But then everything went to you, which is an acronym and military acronym for tits up. Uh, a fog settled over the battlefield. No one could see each other. The Continental soldiers started shooting at each other. They didn't know who was who. The British helped us along a little bit by setting all the fields on fire. So now there's fog and smoke everywhere. The Continental Militia, which were supposed to close in on the flanks, they got lost. They did not show up. All this confusion gave Howe and Lord Cornwallis, his, uh, his right-hand man, enough time to organize a counterattack. And once again, for the third time in as many weeks, the Continental Army is on the run. And so, tail between its legs, the British are triumphant. All the goodwill Washington had bought for himself a, by driving the British out of Boston in 1775, that had more or less dissipated when Washington lost New York. I mean, consecutive battles in New York, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, the Battle of White Plains, the Battle of Harlem Heights. Finally, Washington's running away across New Jersey, once again with his tail between his legs. His army is being chased by Cornwallis. He got some of that goodwill back the previous Christmas with his surprise raids on Trenton and the follow-up on Princeton 
which uh, uh, shocked the hell out of the British. And people were like, okay, we give them a little goodwill. But then the Philadelphia campaign pretty much took, especially among the New England members of the Continental Congress, they were, the whispers about George Washington were now becoming roars. Who is this guy? Why is this, why was this guy in charge of our army when he's running willy-nilly across the Pennsylvania countryside being beaten by the British at every turn? So it was not a good time for George Washington, nor the Continental Army, nor the American Revolution. It doesn't seem like George Washington is the figure that we've enshrined in marble. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting the sense that he is a, a great tactician, like some of history's uh, most memorable commanders. Is, is that fair to say? Uh, from the outside, yes, it is. That would be the view, say, of John Adams, of Sam Adams, of John Hancock, of the New Englanders who were not inclined to put their faith in Washington to start with. But the one thing that this man had, and that was an undying faith in the American Revolution. He was the, you're right about he was a polymath. He was self-taught. When he was, as I said before, he was a very good infantry commander during the French and Indian War. But when he was named commander-in-chief, he immediately sent his aides out to buy books on uh, cavalry tactics, on military engineering, on naval warfare. He was self-taught. And this was the period, pre-Valley Forge and during Valley Forge, where Washington began to bloom as a military commander, and as a statesman. And just as he taught himself naval tactics, let's say, or military engineering, he also taught himself to be a politician. He was a very blunt man who wasn't used to playing the politics game. But when he realized that he had to play this game in order to save the nation, United States of America, he learned to play it very well. So all the sniping that was coming out of him, he played the politicians better than they thought they could be played. And his men realized this. And that and here's the key to the George Washington's character. Valley Forge would have been a disaster had, George, had any other general been in charge. Now, I'm not talking Frederick the Great. Had any other American general been in charge? It was racked with, I wasn't kidding earlier, starvation. The men were starved. 2,000 men perished at Valley Forge, more than any revolutionary battle during the entire war. And the reason that these men did not fall apart, or as Washington put it in a letter to Congress, starve, dissolve, or disperse, was because of George Washington's will. They knew they were fighting for a man who was looking to keep this country, this new country, together. And they stayed behind him. And Washington realized this. And that was his ace in the hole against Congress. And he said to Congress, the rump quorum that I talked about that was out in New York, he said, why don't you send a delegation out here? Why don't you come and see what I'm dealing with? And sure enough, five congressmen came out. They came to be known as the camp committee. When these five congressmen came out of New York and, and, and journeyed to Valley Forge, the 80 miles to Valley Forge, they were shocked. They were shocked by what they saw, the, the, the starvation. The, uh, the illnesses, the, everything from exposure to typhus to smallpox, uh, and by the, the nakedness, and I'm not talking metaphorically, I'm talking about sentries standing outside of Valley Forge, 
naked, wrapped in an old ratty blanket, no shoes, no socks, standing on their hats in the freezing mud or the snow. And finally it dawned on Congress, we must support the man, George Washington, the General George Washington, the Commander-in-Chief George Washington. He is the only thing not only holding this army together, but he is the only thing holding our republic together. So yes, in a sense, that man we see on the dollar bill and on the marble statues, Washington taught himself to become that man. And that kind of personal loyalty and devotion, you can't buy that. You can't train that. You can't teach that. No, no. And and and, and the congressman who, who still tried to uh, depose Washington as commander-in-chief, they found that out. Uh, there was Horatio Gates was a British-born American general who had volunteered his services to the colonies or to the states, the new states, when they first declared uh, their independence. And Gates kind of thought, Washington is this rube from the cow paths of Virginia. I should be in charge. And sure enough, as Washington is running willy-nilly and losing battle after battle during 1777's Pennsylvania campaign, in upstate New York in the little hamlet of Saratoga, Horatio Gates gets credit for capturing an entire British army marching down from Canada. And Gates wasn't really the impetus behind what happened up there. Believe it or not, it was Benedict Arnold and some other generals, Enoch Poor from New Hampshire. But Gates got the credit for it. And so the New England faction of the Continental Congress are saying, hey, why isn't Gates in charge? And they started maneuvering to put Gates in charge. But every time they maneuvered, they made Gates, they, they, they created this, this bureaucracy, the board of war, and they made Gates the president. Well... Every time they maneuvered to put Gates in charge, Washington countermaneuvered. And he said, okay, there's a board of war, but I'm the commander-in-chief, so I have to, all these decisions the board of war makes have to come through me, according to what we spoke about when you first appointed me. So Washington, as I said earlier, he was learning to play this game of politics. And he had a young aide-de-camp on his staff, John Lawrence, uh, actually the three, uh, Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette, and John Lawrence, were Washington, who was childless, of course. He had a he had a stepson with Martha, had a son before she married him, but he was childless. These young men, I mean, Lafayette was 19 when he arrived in the United States, and Lawrence was 23, Hamilton was 22. They were all aides de camp. These young men were Washington's surrogate sons, in a way. And John Lawrence was the son of the president of the Continental Congress, Henry Lawrence of South Carolina. So Washington used that back-channel communication between John Lawrence and Washington to remain one step politically ahead of the men who were gunning for his job. And we're talking about, I mean, Benjamin Rush was uh, a hero. He was a, sur a Philadelphia surgeon, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he had originally been a Washington ally. He wanted Washington appointed commander-in-chief. But by this point, even men like Benjamin Rush had turned on Washington. Rush wrote an anonymous pamphlet uh, saying that Washington was uh, wanted to be a dictator and he had no military skills. And this was reprinted and spread up and down the East Coast. In fact, it was Patrick Henry, and then governor of Virginia, who wrote to Washington to say, I recognize Benjamin Rush's handwriting. This is the kind of statesman, this is the kind of powerful statesman you are up against. So please watch your back. And Washington at this point had learned to watch his back and he had learned 
counter. It was almost like jujitsu. Every time someone in the Continental Congress threw a punch at George Washington, he not only evaded the punch, but he turned the whole situation topsy-turvy. So he, he has to he deal, had, he, he, the guy is trying to fight a war, he, mm-hmm. an uphill battle, and he also has to deal with this political sniping, and he has to manage uh, an army that's uh, covering a great distance, the, the whole North American seaboard, basically. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the personalities of his team of commanders, guys like Gates you already talked about, General mm-hmm. Green, General Wayne? Washington surrounded himself. I mean, it was a true meritocracy. Uh, I mentioned before Anthony Wayne of Pennsylvania, uh, who later in the war earned the sobriquet Mad Anthony Wayne. Uh, And then there was the fighting Quaker, Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island, uh, General Knox of Boston. These men were all self-taught. None of them were professional soldiers. And Washington watched them and watched them mature into leaders, into military leaders. And he'd like to surround himself with those kind of men, despite the fact that soldiers of fortune, the Marquis de Lafayette aside, soldiers of fortune were consistently landing on American shores. And they expected to be handed a general sash and given charge of a brigade. And Washington could not stand this. And Congress kept telling him, You've got to do this because most of these uh, professional soldiers were French. We need France in the war. We need France to have our back. And Washington just could not stand these, these uh, uh, what did he call them, favorite war, these popinjays who kept showing up in America, expected to lead brigades and regiments. He instead preferred to surround himself with his homegrown soldiers, the gate, uh, the gates, the, uh, uh, the Waynes the Greens, the Knoxes, the men he had watched grow into their stature as military leaders. And there was a sense of friction there. But Washington was also political enough to not drive away the French completely. And one of the reasons for that is that he was adored by the Marquis de Lafayette. I, I mentioned before that Lawrence, who, by the way, is the founding father you never heard of, John Lawrence, Alexander Hamilton, and the Marquis de Lafayette, they all lived at Valley Forge in this farmhouse. Washington rented. He wouldn't take it. He rented. There's 21 men living in a three-bedroom farmhouse. And then Martha showed up. And But if there was a favorite child, which you can never admit as a parent, it would have been the Marquis de Lafayette. I think Washington saw something of his younger self in the Marquis. He was almost puppy-like in his eagerness for battle and accolades, and yet he was also, he did not come off as a pompous French officer. He, As he told Washington, I am willing to learn. I'm willing to learn how you fight here. And I know that your tactics and your strategy is not the same as we use in Europe. Please teach me. And Washington always appreciated that. As I said, he was, uh, he, he was, uh, he was stung by how he had been treated by European soldiers during the Seven Years of War, during the French and Indian War. And the fact that here was this young man, and it probably didn't help either, it didn't hurt either, that Marquis de Lafayette and Washington were both tall men. The Marquis might have been the only man that could look Washington in the eye as they were speaking to each other. Uh, But he had a special soft spot for the Marquis de Lafayette. Now, don't get me wrong. He also realized the Marquis was one of the richest orphans when his parents died at a young age. 
in France. He was a very influ influential man in France. Uh, it, Washington realized that the Marquis's letters to the French foreign minister, the Count de Vergen, who had the young boy king, uh, Louis XVI here, he realized that these letters were going to go a long way towards getting France in the war. But there was also a personal affection between the two men. When I'll give you an example. When the, uh, Lafayette was wounded at the Battle of Brandywine Creek, he took a musket ball to his leg. Washington sought out the surgeons who were treating him, and he said, treat him as if he were my own son. So, yes, there was an affection between Alexander Hamilton and Washington, and especially between John Lawrence and Washington, but it just didn't quite reach the bond that Lafayette and Washington connected with. So, Bob, why Valley Forge? Why this particular site? And it, if we can, let's define terms. When you say we're going to build a winter quarters, what does that mean? What's involved in erecting a winter quarters for an entire army? All right. So, believe it or not, Kevin, historians are quite not quite sure, despite the old adage that uh, the winners write history, victors write history. Historians are still not quite sure how many men precisely in the Continental Army marched into Valley Forge that winter of 1777 and spent the winter of 1777-1778 on this plateau. Valley Forge itself was kind of a compromise winter quarters. Uh, there were those in the Pennsylvania State Legislature who said, no, you, you can't abandon us. The, the, the British will ravage the countryside if you're not close. Valley Forge was 19 miles from Philadelphia, which of course was in British hands at the time. Washington knew that his army, which had just been through defeats at Brandywine, at Paoli, at Germantown, they needed time to rest and recover. He really said, in, a, in, a, in the best of all worlds, I would move 100 miles back and give my army time to recover and rejuvenate and retrain. But the political authority said, okay, we understand you don't want to attack Philadelphia in the middle of winter which actually some of them did want to, but for the majority said, but we cannot have you far from Philadelphia or else the British will just ravage the countryside. So Valley Forge, this windswept plateau, about 19 miles uh, northwest of Philadelphia, was chosen as the site where they would build 2,000 log huts. And Kevin, when I'm talking log, I mean, 12 men to a hut, Sometimes these 12 men would have to build, not sometimes, they, to where the 12 men, these squads, would have to build their own living quarters, and sometimes they might have one hammer to share. And so it was really, really rough. And finally they got these 2,000 huts up. And if you go to Valley Forge today, they have facsimiles of some of the huts, and you're allowed to walk in them. And you could, you could just imagine the fetid conditions. The, uh, in fact, Tom and I, my co-author Tom Clavin and I, we love to rely on the most con contemporaneous uh, sources that we can for, uh, for our military histories. So we kind of usually split the research. But in this case, I said, listen, let me take Washington. So I read everything, every personal letter, every proclamation, every general order, 
all his correspondence with the Continental Congress, almost 2,000 utterances is the wrong word, 2,000 uh, of his uh, letters, public, public proclamations, general orders. I read them between August 1, 1777 and August 1, 1778. And of course, along with the journals that Tom and I both read and the diaries, there was a through line that ran through them all. And it was about how much Valley Forge stunk. It was like there was an illness hanging over the camp. And that was because, remember I told you early on, there was the myths we don't know about Valley Forge. Well, one of those mm -hmm. myths, believe it or not, is that, oh, yeah, Valley Forge, everybody thinks, hey, coldest winter ever. Well, no, it was not. In fact, it was one of the most mild winters on record for that part of southeast Pennsylvania. But what happened was is they, they would get, of course, their share of ice storms and snowstorms, and the ground would freeze and harden. But then a week later, temperatures would soar into the 40s, and they'd get this rain, and the rain would melt the snow and the ice, and it would overflow the haphazardly dug latrines, and the horses who had dropped dead of starvation a week earlier and could only be buried and a, a foot into the frozen soil, their entrails would start to bubble up from the soil. And there was a miasma that hung over the camp that everyone commented on. It just, it stunk. In, in plain English, the camp stunk more than your normal winter quarters would stink. And with that, the fact that they still managed to get through that, it still amazes me. I mean, I wrote the book, and it still amazes me that they managed to march out there, march out of there in 1778 as a coordinated army. So I'm not even sure if I answered your question, but I think I just went off on a tangent there, and I apologize. Well, well going off that point that you just got onto, how bad was it? I mean, you you mentioned you know most of the soldiers aren't clothed. Um, I assume that the uh, actually, the more mild winter lends itself better to disease. Um, Correct. Or worse for yeah. disease, excuse me. Um, yeah. How bad were the conditions, and how did Washington keep discipline during all this? Well, I mean, we have this, well, we've been talking about the loyalty of the soldiery to Washington, but let's not go too far overboard. There were desertions galore. And, in fact, Washington had to put into place several. He would have uh, two and sometimes three roll calls a day because the missing men, Figuring if they did a roll call every eight hours, the missing men couldn't have gotten too far. He would hang men who were uh, recidivists. Did I say that right? Recidivists. Who had deserted, been uh, punished with the lash, and then deserted again. Washington had no compunction about hanging them in the parade ground, as an example for everyone. In fact, Kevin, here's a little sidebar. The phrase, bite the bullet, uh, it the can be the etymology of that phrase can be traced back to Valley Forge because so many men were lashed for their desertion that the the lasher would give them a lead musket ball to bite on and that's where we get the phrase you got to bite the bullet and uh, but I don't want to make it sound like this was a pirate's den for the most part these men who were sick and who were tired and who were freezing and who were half clothed and who were starving that's another myth is that oh okay the Pennsylvania country uh, the Pennsylvania campaign of the late summer of 1777 and the fall of 1777 must have just uh, wiped out the farms in the area no wonder these men couldn't get any food well there were two reasons one is that the United States was such a young country 
its politicians had no clue how to feed, clothe, and arm an army. Uh, think about it, Kevin. Other countries had been doing this for decades, for centuries. We've been basically doing this for months, and we didn't have any money. We were revolting against the British for taxation, and now we're going to tax the people so we could send food to Valley Forge? No, it's not working that way. But Washington refused to allow his soldiers to scavenge the countryside. Well, of course not the countryside, most people think. There was no food left. It had been scavenged during the military campaigns. That's wrong, too. The crop yield of 1777 was one of the greatest of the decade. But the civilian farmers preferred to smuggle their food into Philadelphia, where the British, where the Redcoats were paying pounds sterling, sometimes even gold for, for cattle, for pigs, for wheat, for corn, for winter fruits. Whereas the Continentals had no money. They had this worthless script they were paid in. And the British were counterfeiting the script left and right. Some, some, in some places, the inflation was like 160%. So these farmers are saying, well, am I going to take this worthless piece of paper? Or am I going to try to get my food into Philadelphia? And Washington did what he could to stem this. He sent out patrols. And I said before, he wouldn't take uh, property or food or, or livestock from farmers. But he, he found them smuggling on the, on the road with cartloads of food, chickens, into Philadelphia. He gave his field commanders permission to take that food. And that helped a lot. But it didn't help the men who were, as I said, the 2,000 men who perished from a combination of exposure, uh, uh, diseases. I mean, it was lice-infested, smallpox epidemics. Uh, and, and, men would, and, and men would, some of them just lost faith. I mean, Washington, especially when the Baron von Steuben arrived, and he said, listen, you got to clean up this mess. You can't have your latrine snaking through where your bread ovens are. You got to put them on the other side of your kitchens. And he said, let's let's make sure that the men all use these latrines. These guys are just peeing in their in their huts because they're too weak or it's too cold to go outside. We can't have this. And so bit by bit, as the winter wore on, the army kind of came together and they realized we're Washington realized it took him some time. He had gone into Valley Forge with a ragtag collection of disparate state militias. They trained their own way. They fought their own way. They messed their own way. I mean, they ate their own. And with the addition of, I know I got off onto the Baron von Steuben here, but when von Steuben came and became the drill master of Valley Forge, suddenly this ragtag, this hobnailed collection, uh, bobtailed collection of soldiery became a cohesive army. And I think that, I mean, well, uh, let's talk about Von Steuben a little bit, uh, because you dedicate quite a bit of space to him in the book. Uh, he basically comes in and overhauls the army. Uh, he serves the role of, I guess, what today we would call a consultant. Um, can you tell us about the reforms that he put in place? Uh, Kevin, you're on my, as you could probably tell from our conversation, George Washington is my favorite character in our book, Valley Forge, but the Baron uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben, on Steuben to you and me, he's, he's well, he or John Lawrence, I guess they're tied for my second favorite character. Von Steuben was, he arrived at Valley Forge. He was as colorful as his name. He arrived at Valley Forge in late February, uh, pulled um, uh, in a sleigh by a team of coal-black Per Chiron horses he had purchased uh, 
in France to make a grand entrance. Of course, he had purchased them on borrowed money because he was dead flat broke. The sleigh was adorned with 24 jingle bells. Washington actually rode out to meet him because the word that Washington had is this is an acolyte of Frederick the Great. And Washington, as were most Western generals, was in awe of Frederick the Great, who was, of course, the leader of the fierce Prussian army. So on, Washington rides out, and here's this guy in a, in a sleigh adorned with jingle bells. He's got his little pocket greyhound named Azar sitting in his lap. He's got on a silk brocaded military uniform with two big horse pistols uh, slapped around. And in his wake, he's got a retinue of servants and aides de camp and assistants. Kevin, Von Steuben even brings a French chef to Valley Forge. <laughs> of course, the chef was there 48 hours before he quit and went back to Paris. But Von Steuben also arrived at Valley Forge with a resume that was more doctored up than the Mayo Clinic. You see, despite all his airs, as a Prussian soldier, Von Steuben had never risen above the rank of captain. And uh, he, he had been a, a, a good soldier but nonetheless, a captain. Now, here is Washington sending these screeds to uh, Silas Dean and Benjamin Franklin, the two American representatives in, in Paris. Do not send me any more of these foreign popinjays. I don't want any more of these soldiers of fortune. So when the French foreign minister, uh, the Count de Vergen, introduces von Steuben to George Washington, I mean, I'm sorry, to Ben Franklin, Franklin is like, no, 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 I can't, I can't use this man, uh, you know. And, but Berzon said, please, just give him a chance. So over the course of three meetings, uh, von Steuben had no English. He spoke uh, German and French, and Franklin, of course, was fluent in French. So over the course of three meetings, Franklin comes to realize, wow, this is the guy. This is the guy we need to turn our bobtailed army into a cohesive fighting force. My goodness, because Frederick the Great was the only Western army, the Prussian army was the only Western army where officers actually lived for 10 years when they first enlisted. They lived with the enlisted men. They ate with them. They trained with them. They get down in the muck and mire with them. Every other army, the officers felt that this was beneath them. And they left that training, that drilling to the NCOs, to the sergeants and the corporals. But when von Steuben started to explain to Franklin, this is what I will teach your Continental Army, Franklin was like, yes, definitely, but how do we sell them to Washington? So Silas Dean, Benjamin Franklin, the Count de Vergen, they get together and they come up with this cover story. And suddenly von Steuben's captain's bars are replaced by the stars of a three-star general. And suddenly he is the personal aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great, who had been for over a dozen years the Prussian Army's Inspector General. None of this is true, Kevin. None of this is true. But this is what von Steuben shows up with. In the, this, this is in his letters of introduction. So, so he's so, an imposter. Pretty much. Pretty much. He's an imposter who knows his stuff. Let me put it that way. And he knew eventually, they all knew, Franklin, von Steuben, they all knew eventually the truth would come out. But they were banking on, by the time the truth did come out, von Steuben would have been such an influence on the American army, on the Continental Army, that it wouldn't matter. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, I'll give you, von Steuben was there a couple of days. 
after introductions to Washington, he took it upon himself to go on an informal inspection tour. And you can imagine these soldiers. It's February, the cruelest month. They're starving. They're half clothed. Half, you know, half the men in their in their cabin might be, if not lice infested, perhaps dying of some disease. And here comes this big, portly Prussian. And von Steuben was no young man. He was in his mid-40s. Bit of a double chin starting. Had a bit of a belly. Here comes this well-dressed man, foreign officer, striding into your fetid cabin, asking you, listen, you do go to the bathroom in the latrines, right? Do you know how to quick march? Do you know how to wield a bayonet? Do you know? Just peppering you with questions. And Washington got word of this, and he said, hmm, maybe this guy is the real deal. Within a week, von Steuben had peppered Washington with memos, saying, this is what you got to do. You got to dig your latrine somewhere else. Let's, let's pave or let's grade these roads between the cabins to give, you know, like a European sense of, of regiment. Each regiment has its own area. And so finally, von, uh, Washington is so convinced that von Steuben is the man to transform his army, he orders a general order. And he says, no one will train unless they are associated with von Steuben. And what he did was he gave von Steuben his 15-man personal guard, he added 50 men, representative of all uh, 11 colonies who were represented at, at Valley Forge. Georgia and South Carolina weren't represented. They needed to be home to defend Savannah and and uh, Charleston. And, von St and in Washington said to Von Steuben, you take these 100 men and you train them, and then you send them out throughout my army as your sub-trainers. And that's exactly what Von Steuben did on the, fir on the first morning, Kevin. He's on the parade ground with his 100 men. And, of course, there's thousands of men watching. They have nothing else to do. There's thousands of men watching. And von Steuben spends the entire morning teaching them how to stand at attention. That's what a stickler he was for detail. Now, of course, I said earlier, because he had no English, Hamilton and John Lawrence followed von Steuben around like a couple of Prince Hal's following Falstaff. They adored this man. He was martiality itself personified so washington and both of them had french so washington assigned them you'll be von steuben's translators so and this is one of the reasons i love the man so much i said before he was a stickler for detail if someone made a mistake on the parade ground kevin von steuben would doff it throw away his hat and he'd toss his riding crop and his face would turn red and he would yell to whoever was translating for him that day hamilton lawrence in French, get over here and swear for me. And then a string of Prussian oaths and a string of French oaths would sputter out of this man's mouth. And I said before he had no English, he had one word in English. God damn. So these French oaths and these Prussian oaths would be uh, punctuated by von Steuben's God damn. And by the time Lawrence or Hamilton translated all this fulmination into English, the men who were being trained were just doubled over in laughter. Pretty much, we love this guy. This is our kind of guy. We can learn from this man because they eventually learned, as I said before, like all of Frederick the Great's Prussian officers, von Steuben was not averse to getting down, lying flat in the mud on that ample belly of his and teaching how to, to uh, read a terrain. He was not averse to getting down on his knees and doffing his greatcoat and showing them the proper way to jam a bayonet 
into an enemy's belly. And, you know, he said to them, you think this bayonet is for eating your biff stick? I'm going to show you how to kill men with it. And he did. And he would. And so the enlisted men loved him. The, the, the lower ranking officers, the lieutenants, the captains, they loved him because as, as an officer in the Continental Army, von Steuben was allowed a little more rations. And he used to invite these junior officers over to his cabin. Come on, I'm having a sans culotte party. Now, sans culotte, of course, in French means no, no pants. And you could only go to one of von Steuben's dinners if you had no pants or if your pants were such shredded that they looked like you had no pants. And then, of course, on the many occasions when von Steuben was invited over to Washington's headquarters, he would charm the French-speaking uh, colonial officers' wives with, you know, ribald tales of the salons of Europe. All in all, this man is the unsung hero of the American Revolution. So much so that the very last, let me make sure I have this date right, the very last communication George Washington wrote as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army before he resigned that position in 1783 was to the Baron von Steuben, thanking him for turning his army into a cohesive professional military unit. So. Von Steuben. I, I guess I went on a little bit too long about Von Steuben here, but there's a good reason for it. And that is when the Continental Army marched out of Valley Forge in June of 1778 and uh, marched quick step that they had been taught by Von Steuben, as a matter of fact, and were preparing to meet the British Army on the, uh, the sandy plains of New Jersey, a little hamlet called uh, Monmouth Courthouse. Von Steuben, the, the, von Steuben had taught the Americans so well that when they arrived, the British had what I like to call this, you're probably too young to remember, but their Butch and Sundance moment. Who are these guys? Who are these Americans? These, these are not the guys that we brushed off our shoulder like Lint at Brandywine Creek, that we massacred at Paoli, that we made run away for 12 miles at Germantown. This is a professional army. Look at the way they're wheeling. In, in in step, look at the way they're bringing their artillery up. Wow, looks like we might have a fight on our hands here. And as it turned out, Washington had put another general in charge of attacking the British that day. That was a mistake. Because Washington was bringing up the rear with reinforcements. And by the time he got to the front lines, the Continental Army was in retreat. And for the first time in public, his aides had never seen Washington like this. He basically blew his top. He went up to the general, Charles Lee, and said, what is the meaning of this, sir? What is the meaning of this? I dismiss you. Go to the rear. And then Washington began riding up and down the retreating lines, begging, coercing, order, men, stand and fight with me. Stand and fight with me. Finally, the men stopped, and they turned, and they faced Washington. And he was, sta- he was standing so close to the front lines that by this time, the British had moved their artillery up. And grape shot is flying through the air, just missing his head. A cannonball lands mere yards from his horse, splatters mud. And it was this humid, hot day. And Washington, riding up and down the lines, jumping hedgerows, jumping fences. He rode his horse so hard that it was 112 degrees that day. The first horse he had dropped dead, collapsed beneath him and, and died of heat exhaustion. He just held out his hands and his aide gave him another horse. So finally he stands. And he's atop his horse, and these men have turned. And he's looking, and by this time, the British 
of a bayonet attack, maybe a mile and a half away. It's a sea of red, and they're glinting bayonets. And Washington is on his horse pointing his sword, and he's yelling, Will you stand and fight with me today? Not will you stand and fight for me today. Will you stand and fight with me today? With me, I beseech you. And a roar went up, Kevin. And if you want to know what happened next, well, you're just going to have to buy the damn book, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, the third part of of the book is just uh, an amazing tale of of the army once they've come out of the crucible of Valley Forge, and uh, I mean the heroics of General Washington. Um, yeah, very well done. Um, one last question for you: um, How should we Americans living today, because we are the beneficiaries of Valley Forge, how should we how should we remember Valley Forge? Valley Forge was the winter when a disparate set of colonies became a nation in more than name, in more than declaration, in more than paper. Our army became a professional army, and because our army became a professional army, we were able to continue the revolution. I mean, uh, uh, I guess... Tom and I contend in our book, Valley Forge, that the characters who inhabit the pages of this book, Kevin, and their share, shared core values were part of the most productive generation of statesmen in the history of the United States. And we know the same full well, the import that uh, uh, Lincoln's team of rivals had on the nation and FDR's kitchen cabinet. But we, what we hope we've accomplished with this book is to, as the anthropologists say, to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. There's a story. It was, you'd like to say, well, it was a different time in a different place. But men are still venal. Men are still courageous. And at this time and at this place, and from then on, when Washington became president Washington, there was a sense that we were doing something different. The United States was born in the age of the Enlightenment, of course, and Valley Forge midwived that birth, if I could put it that way. Well, Bob, you are a natural-born storyteller. I think I could listen to you talk all day. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's been a, a real pleasure. Um, if someone would like to go and, and buy the damn book, as we said earlier, uh, where can they go? Kevin, it's still in bookstores and go, I, I don't have anything against Amazon. You go to Amazon and, uh, I have, I actually have a page. Valley Forge, of course, has its own page on Amazon, but so does Bob Drury, D-R-U-R-Y. If you want to see some of the other stuff that my partner in crime, Tom Clavin and I have put together, something, you might find something to interest you. We've, uh. We run the gamut between among World War Two, the Korean War, Vietnam, uh, two World War Twos. Now that I think of it, Red Cloud, you know the the Indians out west, and uh, and I'm working on something right now. Won't be published for a couple of years, but anyway, I am going off on a tangent. Amazon.com has all you need about Bob Drury and Valley Forge. <laughs> all right, Bob. All right, Bob. Well, thank you, thank again. you again, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. 
thank you for listening to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bob Drury. If you are interested in the book Valley Forge, you'll find a link to it in the episode description on your podcast app. If you want a list of back episodes of the show to see what other topics we've covered, visit can'tmakethisuppodcast.com forward slash show archive. If you are currently a follower of the show on Twitter, or not yet a follower of the show on Twitter, I have a favor to ask. I have a poll up on Twitter running now through April 18th, where I'm asking, how did you hear about the show? I'm very interested in learning where the audience comes from and how the word about the show gets out. So if you want to follow the show, if you're not already, and cast your vote, it'd be much appreciated. Lastly, I have a few thank yous to make. I'd like to thank Jennifer of Haunted Happenstance, Canadian Girl of the Nothing Ever Happens in Canada podcast, and Cam and Jen of Our True Crime podcast for all running promos on the Can't Make This Up History podcast over the last couple of weeks. That means a lot, so thank you guys very much. And if you haven't checked these shows out, I definitely encourage you to do so. Oh, one more thank you. Thank you to the Small Town Secrets podcast for airing an urban legend that I shared with them from my neck of the woods. That was pretty cool to hear. Well, that's all I got for this episode. Uh, I will be slowing down the pace for the next couple of installments. I just have a, a lot of books for the podcast I have to catch up on. So I will see you all back here in three weeks on Tuesday, May 7th for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast.